let's uh, look in uh, Revelation 22 tonight, and uh, we'll read verses 6 down to the end of the chapter there. Uh, we are going to finish this book tonight, Lord willing, and so we want to uh, read this section uh, together. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 6. Let's stand together and let's read it. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and and let the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy... God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And as you can imagine, I could probably spend weeks on that, but we're going to get through it tonight, Lord willing. Let's pray together. Father, we... Thank you again for your precious word. Lord, what a comfort this word is to us. And Lord, when we start thinking about the glories of heaven, we start thinking of the eternal state and uh, the culmination of all things. Lord, we uh, are just so uh, anxious to experience that. And yet, Lord, we know we have work to do. We have uh, things that we need to accomplish in this age, in this time. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful. And, Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to have a sense of urgency as we think about these things. Because there are people all around us that don't know you. And some who are in perilous uh, situations that need to be warned. So, Lord, help us to 
be brave and to be bold. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, bless us as we go through uh, this passage, that we might have a good grasp on what uh, you intend for it. And uh, help us to understand it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the message tonight is entitled, The Final Word on the Return of Christ. Chapter 22, verses 6 through 21 form an epilogue to the book of Revelation. And even though the prophecy is at this point complete, there are still some important truths to learn from this last section. Uh, John MacArthur writes, The text is pregnant with urgency, pressuring every reader to take action based on the truths that it presents. Nothing more clearly communicates that sense of urgency than the repetition of the phrase, Behold, I am coming quickly. That declaration is the refrain of this passage. And since Jesus could rapture the church at any moment, triggering all the end-time events, culminating in His uh, second coming, His return, believers and unbelievers need to be ready. The adverb, taku, quickly, does not refer to the speed at which Christ will travel from heaven to earth, when he returns, but instead it has the connotation of soon or before very long. And the point is that the judge is standing right at the door, as James wrote in James 5, 9, poised to return at any moment. So the doctrinal reality of imminence is very important in this section of Scripture. And what we see here is that It is somewhat difficult at times as you go through this passage to know who is speaking because it changes and it goes back and forth. At times it is an angel. At other times it's Jesus. At other times it's John. And so you have to identify the speaker. And in this section we see that it's it's really fairly difficult to outline this. Uh, So I'll just give you my feeble attempt as we go through it. We read it a few minutes ago, but now let's walk through it. Notice, first of all, an undeniable affirmation. In verse 6, through the, the first part of verse 8, we see a threefold affirmation that the words of this prophecy are trustworthy. This testimony is given by an angel, by Jesus, and by John. This affirmation has some similarities to chapter 1. It begins with a word of testimony from the same angel guide that we have seen beginning in chapter 29, verse, 21, verse 9. But look at verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants, the things which must shortly take place. The first thing the angel affirms is the truthfulness of the words of this book. This is the first layer of heavenly attestation of the validity of everything that John has seen and heard. Back in chapter 21, verse 5, we saw a similar affirmation by God himself. 
It says, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Now, we've also seen that phrase, faithful and true, which has been used twice to refer to Jesus himself in chapter 3, verse 14, and in chapter 19, verse 11. MacArthur says the words of the apocalypse are as faithful and true as the one who revealed them to John, Jesus himself. What the inspired apostle has written is not mystical. The apocalypse is not a record of his bizarre dreams or the result of an overactive imagination. It is not an allegory from which readers can extract hidden meanings of their own concoction. It is an accurate description of events and persons yet to come. The angel also affirms that it is God who is the source of the truth that his prophets have decreed will take place in the future. Look at the last part of verse 6. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. This is nothing short of a claim that what John has written here is divine revelation. This ties John in with the other divinely inspired writers of both the Old and the New Testaments. Steve Gregg writes, The authenticity of the messenger is affirmed by the statement that he was sent by the Lord God of the Holy Prophets, which also emphasizes the continuity of the prophetic spirit's activity from the Old Testament times through in, into the New. It also emphasizes that just as the other prophecies in the Old Testament were literally fulfilled, so these will also be literally fulfilled. This angelic affirmation assures the readers that all of these things are soon to come to pass. Well, the second part of the affirmation is voiced by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And we're going to see that phrase, behold, I am coming quickly, really all throughout this passage. It is pointing to the fact that the return of Christ has been imminent from the first century onward. This phrase really repeats the theme of the book that we saw in chapter 1, verse 7, that Christ will come in the clouds. And that verse, of course, says, Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, even so, Amen. His coming is imminent. It could be at any moment. And then we have the sixth beatitude of this book. Blessed is He who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. The word for heeds there probably means uh, especially to heed the warnings of judgment and to make sure you put your faith in the Lamb before it's too late. To heed the warning 
of judgment. Of course, all of God's Word needs to be heeded. We are to be doers of the Word and not hearers only, as James said in James 1.22. So all of the Word of God is to be heeded, but this is in a special sense we're to heed the words of this prophecy. The Greek word used here also may have the meaning of guarding and protecting. Uh, MacArthur writes, believers are called to guard or protect the book of Revelation. It must be defended against detractors who deny its relevance, against critics who deny its veracity and authority, as well as against confused interpreters who obscure its meaning. So, in other words, we've got to make sure we get it right and that we defend what is being communicated here. Of course, this is very similar to what Paul wrote to Timothy in regard to all of Scripture. All of Scripture needs to be defended, not just the revelation. Paul said, guard what has been entrusted to you. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and the love which are in Christ Jesus, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which He has entrusted to you. So all of the Word of God needs to be heeded. All of the Word of God needs to be guarded and kept pure. So there's the element of guarding the Word of God, which includes this book. But I think we need to understand that to heed the words of this book is to desire for its realities to come to pass. We need to understand that God does not give us this revelation merely to satisfy our curiosity or to entertain us. He gives it to us to inspire us to live godly lives and to be diligent in our witness to an unbelieving world. There is a purpose for heeding the words of this book. Well, the third part of this undeniable affirmation comes from John himself. Look at the first part of of verse 8. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. This is actually the first time that John has named himself since chapter 1, verse 9. Actually, in chapter 1, he names himself three times, in verse 1, verse 4, and verse 9. But he hasn't named himself since then, until we get to this last chapter. This kind of autobiographical assertion was common, really, in ancient documents, and is the author's endorsement that what he has written is true. So we have this threefold affirmation of the truthfulness and the authority of this book. But let's move on. Secondly, we see an erroneous assumption. An erroneous assumption. We've seen this kind of response from John before, but look at the last part of verse 8. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And we saw the same, this same kind of thing back in chapter 19 and verse 10. 
And it's probably for the same reason. John just gets so caught up in the amazing visions that he uh, is seeing here that he gets confused. So he falls down and he begins to worship the angel. And he has to be reminded that there is no one that is worthy of worship other than the Lord himself. And so we see an erroneous assumption on John's part. Thirdly, we see an angelic announcement. The angel speaks again in verse 10. Look at it. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. In contrast to what Daniel was told about his prophecy in Daniel 12, verse 4, John is not to seal up the contents of this book. And the reason given for that is because the time is near. Time is near. Now, when Daniel wrote his book, the fulfillment of the events revealed in that book were many days in the future, Daniel says. That's Daniel 8.26. But here we're told the time is near. Now, that does not mean that all the events recorded in this book were going to happen soon after John wrote this. What it means is that the message of the book was immediately applicable to the churches that it was being sent to. Wolf explains that the phrase, at hand, or is near, does not mean that the time of the fulfillment was for John's day, but that the time for the book to be read and explained was at hand for the churches of Asia Minor. And by the way, the, the early Christians got much comfort from this particular book of the New Testament. MacArthur says the message of the apocalypse is not to be hidden. It is a message to be spread and proclaimed to produce obedience and worship. Immediate proclamation of this book is called for because the coming of Christ has been imminent for every generation from John's day until the present. It was imminent in John's day. It is still imminent in our day. So it is applicable immediately. The message is too important not to proclaim. People need to be warned of coming judgment. This is very similar, I think, to what we read in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Time is near. God promises a blessing on those who read this book and heed its words. That implies that we have a responsibility in the church to proclaim it. We have a responsibility. Preachers must preach this book. It clearly says that. And I know pastors who shy away from preaching and teaching this book because they do not believe it is relevant. Biblically, we cannot take that position. We'll go on to verse 11. Now, the one who does wrong 
Now let, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and let the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Now this verse may appear to be out of place at first, and to even be fatalistic here in the way it's worded, but what it does really is to reinforce the serious nature of the imminent return of Christ. It reminds us that there will come a time in which the course for each person will be set and unalterable. Therefore, it is an urgent call to choose the right path And it is an urgent call for evangelism. This statement is tied in with the concept that time is short. In reality, no one knows how much time they may have to repent. And a person is either going to end up filthy as a wrongdoer or righteous and holy depending on what he does with Jesus Christ. And so the lesson is, change while there's still time. Repent. Believe the gospel. This also indicates that the proclamation of the book of Revelation tends to draw the line in the sand. You're either on one side or the other. You're either going to end up on this side or on this side. You're either going to end up with the judgment as a sinner still in his sin, or you're going to end up with the blessing and joy of eternal glory as one who is a saint, having put his or her faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. So we see the eternal destiny of people being set. Let's keep moving through this. Next we see an authoritative account. In verse 12, Christ himself begins speaking. Look at it. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Again, we see the refrain of the imminent return of Christ. This time he talks about the reward that he brings, and it is based on what each person has done. The word for reward here probably has both a positive and a negative connotation. It speaks of the crowns that will go to the faithful, the rewards of the faithful, but it also speaks of the judgment that will be the reward for the wicked. It will be their due penalty. And for believers, we know from Scripture that their rewards are based on their righteous deeds. So that is talking about the gold, silver, and precious stones that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 3.12. This is the eternal stuff that can't get burned up. It's what we do in the name of the Lord that produces spiritual fruit. Those are the crowns. That's what we'll receive as believers at the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible is also very clear in many places that the wicked... The lost will be judged on the basis of their sinful works. 
And so we see that referred to here. Men can never, of course, be saved by works, but they will be condemned on the basis of their deeds. And we see that many places, including Matthew 16:27, Matthew 25:31 and following, Romans 2:6, 1 Peter 1:17, and we saw it earlier in Revelation 20, verses verse 13. But go on to verse 13 here in chapter 22. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the first point of identification by Christ. The second one comes in verse 16. But here the emphasis is on the eternality of Christ. Since this book is written in Greek and the people of that day... Uh, spoke Greek, John is using the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet to say that Jesus is the first and the last and everything in between. He is all there is. And so the message that we see here, one commentator explains that the force of this statement is, I am He from whom all being has proceeded and to whom it will return. I am the primal cause and the final aim of all history. He is the one who spoke it into existence. He is the one that will bring it to full culmination. It is also another affirmation of His deity here as well because God the Father is also described that way in chapter 1, verse 8, and in chapter 21, verse 6. He's also described the very same way in Isaiah 44, verse 6, and Isaiah 41, verse 4, and Isaiah 48, verse 12. So all through the Old Testament, we see God the Father is being referred to as the beginning and the end. And here, Jesus Christ is referred to that way. And so it affirms, once again, His deity. And, of course, the author of Hebrews put it another way when he said that Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. That is a very similar kind of statement. Uh, Philippians 1.6 tells us that what God begins, He always finishes. And in this sense, he's really saying, I am the one who created this world, and I am the one who will uncreate it and make a new one. Well, the seventh and final beatitude is found in verse 14. Look at it. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Now, we've already seen that the concept of having one's robes washed refers to the imputed righteousness of Christ that comes when you put your faith in Christ for salvation. That is what Paul describes in Romans as justification. And back in chapter 7, verse 9, we saw where the tribulation saints were those who were clothed in white robes representing the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to them. In chapter 19, verse 14, we saw where the saints who accompanied Christ at His return will be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And by the way, the King James has there, Blessed are they that do His 
Commandments. The New American Standard is, uh, you may know, is based on the Alexandrian manuscripts. But these really say the same thing. One points to the fruit of imputed righteousness, and the other points to the results. So one points to the wearing of the robes, the other points to the obedience of Christ's commands. Steve Gregg explains that since the spotless garments of the true bride are the righteous acts of the saints, chapter 19, verse 8, the call for obedient righteousness remains the thrust of the verse regardless of which reading is chosen. So whether it's the New American Standard or the King James, uh, it all means the same thing. And, of course, those who have been cleansed of their sin will be the ones who are going to be able to enter into the eternal city and partake of the tree of life for all eternity. Verse 15 gives us the contrast. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Anyone who is left outside will be those who will eventually be in the lake of fire. Jesus often employed the phrase outer darkness, which literally means outside the lighted house to describe the reality of hell. This is the outer darkness. These are the ones who are left outside the city. And here we have another list of sinners, like we have seen, that describe those who will be judged eternally by Christ. MacArthur says, It is not all who have ever committed any of these sins who are excluded from heaven. Rather, it is those who love and habitually practice any such sin, stubbornly cling to it, and refuse Christ's invitation to salvation. These are the ones who are going to be left outside. These are the ones who will be cast into the lake of fire. Interesting, though, interestingly, though, he adds the word here, dogs. That's not usually in a list of sinners, but he adds the word dogs here. Now, you probably know this, but dogs in those days were not cute little house pets. They were mangy, mean scavengers that roamed the land and dug in the garbage pits. They were greatly despised, and that's why the Jews used the term dogs to describe the Gentiles, and it's why Paul used it to describe the Judaizers. And it's interesting here that it essentially is being used to refer to someone who is despicable in behavior and character. The dogs are going to be among those who are left outside. It is probable here that the term is being used to describe an especially wicked person. And that's why it is the first one in the list. Well, I've got to go on. I could spend more time on that. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning 
star. This is the second instance of personal identification by Christ in this passage. The emphatic self-designation, I, Jesus, which appears only here in Scripture, serves to place special emphasis on it. This is not the word of man here. This is the word of the Lord of heaven. This is the word of Jesus Christ himself. He is also the Lord of the church and is the one who has sent his angel to deliver this eternal message, this eternal truth. In addition to that, he ties himself here to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and the fact that he is the Messiah of God. Dr. Thomas writes, Jesus ties his claim to authority in Revelation to his claim to Messiahship and his right to inaugurate the kingdom promised to David as David founded the first Jerusalem Jesus will be the founder of the new Jerusalem. The phrase root and offspring of David means both the source and culmination of the Davidic line. MacArthur says the phrase sums up the biblical teaching on Christ's two natures. Only the God-man can be both David's ancestor and his descendant at the same time. And we saw this in our study of the book of Romans. But Jesus is identified here as the bright morning star. This points to his exaltation. And even today in the world, we refer to someone as a star who is exalted in some way. (coughs) Steve Gregg writes that this phrase takes its imagery either from Venus which is sometimes visible in the morning and is called the morning star by the ancients, or from the sun, which is the star that heralds the dawn. He points out that Balaam had prophesied of a star that would arise in Jacob in Numbers 24:17, which is generally regarded as a prophecy about Christ. Jesus promised himself in this terminology to the overcomers of the Thyatiran church in chapter 2, verse 28. And Peter wrote of the hope that eventually the day of the dawn would come and the morning star would rise in believers' hearts. That's Second Peter 1, 19. So we see this idea many times in Scripture Greg says this may refer to the ultimate glorification of the believer in the image of Christ at His coming, the result of a progressive transformation into the same image from glory to glory currently that is occurring in the lives of those who love Him. And we see that in 1 John 3, 2 and in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. MacArthur says, though Balaam was a greedy prophet for hire, God nevertheless used him to make an accurate prediction of the coming Messiah. Because he said, a star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. That's Numbers twenty-four seventeen. 
And as the morning star heralds the, the arrival of the day, so Jesus' coming will herald the end of the darkness of man's night and the glorious dawn of His kingdom. <clears throat> well, we've got to keep moving. Fifthly, we see an ultimate appeal. An ultimate appeal. Look at verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. In this invitation, there are two distinct parts delineated by the exclamation, Come. The first part is a prayer addressed to Christ, and the second part is an appeal to sinners to repent. You may have wondered why the Holy Spirit has really not been seen a lot in the book of Revelation. Although there hasn't been a lot of reference to Him, He's still here. And here we see a reference to Him. Here the Spirit joins in with the bride, all the saints of heaven, and calls for the return of Christ. Of course, the Bible tells us that it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to point men to Christ and to exalt Christ. And so here we see the third member of the Trinity longing for Christ to be exalted. In the same way, the bride, the saints long for the battle with sin to be over and for Christ to come and to establish His eternal reign. And so here we see the same cry that we see John make at the very end of this chapter. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Exalt Yourself. But the very last half of this verse comprises an invitation to the lost. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. This is similar to the divine invitation of Isaiah 55. The concept of the one who hears is the one who hears and believes in Christ. The one who hears the gospel and responds with saving faith. It is the same one who is thirsty who longs for Christ and comes to Christ and is quenched. MacArthur says, thirst is a familiar biblical metaphor picturing the strong sense of spiritual need that is a prerequisite for repentance. Thirsting for Christ, longing for Christ, desiring Christ. And the idea of being able to take the water of life without cost of course, points to saving grace. You can never buy or earn eternal life. It always comes completely by God's grace, by His unmerited favor. Salvation is free, but it is not cheap. It costs God greatly, but it is always provided for us without cost. Sixth, we see an advisory admonition. In verses 18 and 19, we have a strong warning to any who might alter this message in any way. Look at it with me. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues 
which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Jesus is still the one speaking here. And the Lord himself is giving a strong warning to anyone who would tamper with his word in any way. Now, the big debate among scholars here is whether or not this applies to all of Scripture or just this book. Some have claimed that the Revelation may not have been the last book of the New Testament to be written, but I don't think they have much of an argument there. I believe it is the intentional purpose of the Holy Spirit to put this warning at the very end of the very last book of the canon. We are given this strong warning of the danger of adding to or taking away from the Word of God. It's no accident that this is the last book. And at this point, the canon is closed. There is no more authoritative Scripture to be added. The New Testament canon ended with the revelation of Jesus Christ given by John. And in light of the repeated warnings against altering Scripture that we see in places like Deuteronomy 4.2 and 12.32 and in Proverbs 35 and 6, this is simply another echo of that And therefore, it is something that applies to all Scripture. All Scripture. Now, this certainly is a word of warning to copyists and translators of the Bible that they would approach their task with the utmost of care to preserve the inspired text. But it applies also to anyone who would misinterpret it especially for their own selfish reasons. For example, anyone who would reinterpret the Bible to support the practice of homosexuality rather than understanding that the Bible clearly condemns it. We could point to many other examples like that. In fact, even though there are some scholars who try to say that this is just a warning against faulty copying... Dr. Thomas writes, as persuasive as it might be to refer these warnings to later copyists of Revelation and telling uh, consideration against doing so, is that it is explicitly addressed to everyone who hears. In other words, people in the congregations of the seven churches that this went to. Copyists are not the only ones warned. It is for everyone who hears. He says the warnings about adding and taking away must pertain to teachers in the churches. They must be a prophetic protest against the spurious revelations that circulated through false teachers and false prophets in the names of the apostles. The commands here to terminate any further prophecies that might arise through other prophets or prophetesses such as Jezebel are clear. This is a warning against false teaching 
of any kind. Of course, there were other indications that other false teachings were going on in the early church, like the teachings of the Nicolaitans that we saw in chapter 2, verse 2. There was the teaching of the Judaizers that is emphasized in the book of Galatians. There were the Gnostics that were mentioned in Colossians and elsewhere. In later centuries, there were all kinds of isms that threatened the integrity of Scripture. All of that is being warned against here. MacArthur writes, Any false prophet, fraud, or charlatan who adds alleged new revelations to it, as the Montanists did in the early church, and Joseph Smith and Mary Baker Eddy and other false prophets have done in recent times, these will all be judged. And God's judgment will be equally severe on anyone who takes away from these words of Scripture as the heretic Marcion did in the early church and liberal higher critics have done in modern times. By the way, we are also guilty of taking away from Scripture any time we conveniently ignore or fail to apply any teaching of Scripture that we don't like. Any selective hearing is a violation of this warning. Dr. MacArthur says both warnings are a play on words. Those who add to Scripture will have plagues added to them. And those who take away from Scripture will have the blessings of heaven taken away from them. Now, I wish we had more time because this is a very important issue here. But we need to wrap things up because I want to go to 1 Corinthians starting in September. But I do want to read you a quote by J.A. Sice. He wrote this, Oh, my friends, it is a fearful thing to su- suppress or stultify the Word of God. And above all, the words of the prophecy of this book, to put forth for truth what is not truth, denounce as error, condemn, repudiate, or emasculate what God Himself has set His seal to as His mind and His purpose is one of those high crimes not only against God, but against the souls of men which cannot go unpunished. These are serious, serious warnings. Well, we've got to go on to the last thing, an appropriate ending. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Here, John is quoting Jesus, and then he adds his own desire for Christ to come quickly. I don't know about you, but I pray that one often. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. I mean, when I see all this crazy stuff happening in the news, and I see all everything that's going on with ISIS and North Korea and all these kind of things, my prayer is, come, Lord Jesus. John is really speaking here for all believers. 
Because Christians of all ages are those who love His appearing. Those who are longing for His coming. And then John closes the book on a note of transforming grace that makes heaven possible for us. Verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. And remember... When this was written, when this was delivered to the churches, there was severe persecution going on. And it was getting ready to ramp up even more. And so John is saying, may the grace of our Lord sustain you all. And that has been a wonderful promise through church history and is still a wonderful promise today. Let's hang on to that. And let's be all the Lord desires for us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we again ask that you would help us to sense the urgency that is conveyed in this passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for this book. Lord, we want to be blessed. We want to be those who heed the words of this prophecy. We want to be those who are ready for the coming of Christ. We want to be those who are getting others ready for His coming. And Lord, we want to be about Your work. We want to be diligent. We want to work while it's day, while we still can. And Lord, we know that someday we're going to be with You forever. But until that day, help us to be faithful. And Lord, tonight, as we have mentioned, we think about those who may be going through difficult times, suffering. We think of the people who are affected by the hurricane right now. We pray for them. We pray um, for churches and believers in those areas that you would uh, help them and provide and protect. But Lord, we pray for all believers that we would be bold, that we would be um, about the things that are most important, your priorities. Help us to be redeeming the time while there is that opportunity. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that this week. In Jesus' name we pray.